Zechariah chapter uh, 13, it is a difficult passage of Scripture. A difficult passage of Scripture for several reasons. One is because of the ages in which we speak. Uh, we're, we're going to be covering different ages of time. So if you, at any moment of time in this text, get a little sideways, or you get like you're thinking about something outside, or you're thinking about something here, or you're thinking about that bird up in the steeple, or if you're thinking about the preacher spilling coffee all over himself, or wondering what he's going to do, uh, then uh, you're going to miss it because I'm going to tell you right now, this is a passage of Scripture that if you read it just in your daily reading, you're going to be like, what in the world did I just read? But now, if you remember, if you link between Zechariah chapter 12 that we t- covered last week, Zechariah 12 is dealing with the, with the Antichrist. You think about this. That was kind of cut and dry for us. We, we could see that a little bit in the armies of the Antichrist is, is surrounding Jerusalem. And Jesus says, or God says rather, that he is going to crush the enemies uh, like a burdensome stone. He's going to crush them into powder. And then he says, they're going to be drinking from the cup of my wrath. So this is good. God's taking care of the enemies of Israel. They are going to be crushed. He also says that the uh, enemy's horses are going to be struck with confusion. Now he says all that in Zechariah chapter 12. They're going to be confused. Uh, and then he's finally going to annihilate them with a fire. He talks about that in Zechariah 12. As soon as that happens, something great happens. In Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, the Bible says, They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. As soon as the armies of Israel is defeated, uh, they, Israel will see the Christ that they pierced, that they hung upon the cross. As y'all sung about that just a moment ago, and he suffered for our sin and shame. He died for us. He died for Israel. He died for the whole world. And they're going to see that man that they rejected and they refused to listen to. They were blind and they rejected him and they're going to see it and they're going to mourn. The Bible says in verse 10, they will mourn. Now, after a great victory, if you win a ball game or if you win something, it was a big win. Uh, People don't sit around and cry and mourn and say, oh, why did we have to win that game? But here in our text, Israel literally mourns, but not over the victory. They're mourning because they see the one who suffered for them and shed the blood and they rejected. They're mourning because of their blindness. They're they're mourning because of what they did to Jesus Christ. They pierced Him, the Bible says. And then, of course, everyone in the land is going to mourn. Well, chapter 13, listen, if we were going to not put a, 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 a chapter between chapter 12 and chapter 13, if we just wanted to continue that, it would be perfectly fine because it flows beautifully into chapter 13. And in that day, in that day, that little phrase, in that day, is used six times in chapter 12. It's used several times in chapter 13. But the chapter opens up with that, in that day. What does that mean, in that day? Well, it's talking about the end times. It's talking about the day of the Lord. So stay with me. 
You say, well, pastor, prophecy, it just, sometimes I don't get it. Maybe some of you are newer Christians, and I understand that uh, newer Christians, too, through discipleship and through some of those things, can maybe going through Zachariah. There was a lady that just got saved a couple weeks ago, and she came to me this morning and said, I want to be a part of a small group, and I want to be a part of the groups at 10 o'clock. And, and so uh, I was going to uh, walk her to one of the classes, and I put her in one of the classes. She said, well, who, who's, who teaches in that class? And it was the bigger class down at the other end. And I said, well, that's, that is the, uh, uh, the revelation class. That's the, uh, they call it the uh, foundation class. And it's, uh, it's just basically a, the book of revelation. And, and her eyes got big. She said, well, I've just heard Zechariah this morning. I don't know if I can handle revelation. <laughs> and you know what? There's no way she could because her eyes was that big coming out of the service already. Uh, and I saw that. But if you will take it in context, and, and then here's what I suggest. I'm going to preach it to you this morning, but I want you to go back sometime today or tomorrow, and I want you to reread Zechariah 13. Maybe, maybe just stay with me a little bit, but just go back. It's only nine verses. It's not long. And, and just read it and, and then see the application for us today and, and see what God has for us. Zechariah 13 and Zechariah 12 are directly connected. It's for the repentance of Israel. And this is a wonderful response because I love the first verse. Look with me, Zechariah 13, verse number 1. In that day, there it is, a continuation of chapter 12, there shall be a fountain. A fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. We see in there, there's a figure, uh, a fountain is open. If you go to verse 7, he says, Awake, O sword. Awake, O sword. There's a second figure. That sword is for judgment. That is God's wrath being poured out on His Son, the shepherd, Jesus. In verse 1, there is a fountain that is opened for the cleansing for Israel. So we see the cleansing of Israel in chapter number 13, verse number 1, and we see the cost of the Savior in in verse 7 of chapter 13. Remember that. The cleansing for Israel and the cost that the Savior paid for His life on the cross. I want to give you the breakdown of this chapter. The verse, two verses in chapter 13 deals with the millennial age, the millennial period. So when you read verses 1 and 2, let's keep it in context. If you read it all together, you're covering four ages, and so you're going to have things everywhere, and you're not going to understand what's going on. The first two is about the millennial age. What happens in the millennial age? A thousand-year reign, Jesus Christ sits on the throne. He rules and reigns righteous across the land. We're going to explain that in just a minute. Verses 3 through verse 6 is the tribulation period. That is a seven-year period. Three and a half years of peace, three and a half years of literally hell comes to earth. It is torment. It is wrath. God's wrath is poured out the last three and a half years. So seven years. And then verse 7, look at verse 7, and there's only nine verses. Verse 7 is Christ's death at Calvary. It literally goes from the millennial age to the tribulation period all the way back to thousands of years to Golgotha when Jesus suffered for the sins of mankind. And then the last two verses, verses 8 and 9, deals with the sifting of the remnant during the tribulation period, which is the second half. 
that second half of the tribulation period, which is literally that seals are open and, and hell opens up and it comes to earth and there's all kinds of things that takes place in that last tribulation period. Look at verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. So Jesus Christ, who suffered uh, that sin and shame, on, uh, suffered for our sin and shame on Calvary, he opens up a fountain. God opens up a fountain of cleansing. According to verse number 1, it's really an application to the death in verse 10 of chapter 12, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. This fountain is for the cleansing of Israel. Now, uh, William Cowper, he wrote that great hymn of the faith. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Hey, that fountain is not just for us to lose our guilt and thank God that our guilt and our shame was paid for at Calvary and by the blood of Christ. But this was also for not just guilt, but it was for their uncleanness. So they, they had moral responsibilities. See, Israel, listen to me, Israel was guilty of idolatry. Israel was guilty of, of idol worship, as they all were. And so this fountain is opened. It was opened at Calvary, but what did Israel do with that fountain? Israel rejected that fountain. Israel crucified that Savior. They did not realize that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't realize what he came to do. Here's what Israel thought. Israel as a nation thought that Jesus came, don't miss this, to rescue them from Rome. They were under Roman oppression. And when Jesus was talking about conquering, they thought originally that Jesus was actually talking about conquering Rome. And then when he started talking about death and he started about talking about crucifixion and rising again on the third day, the disciples are scratching their head. Judas is mad. Judas wanted someone to overthrow Rome. So Judas betrays Jesus because he was not the Christ that he wanted him to be. Same thing with Israel. The spiritual leaders in Israel... They detested Jesus. They, they did not like him. Why? Because he, to them, was someone who came to mess up their theology and mess up their rules and regulations. He did not fit the Messiah that they were actually looking for. And so what did they do? They, they rejected the Messiah. And like Hagar in the desert in Genesis 21 verse 19, they remain ignorant of the blessed resources that God has provided. God provided for Israel a fountain of cleansing. Now, don't, don't think in your, in your mind that it was a, a, a literal fountain, like the fountain of youth or the fountain in. Do they have a fountain over there? I didn't know. But it, it, you say, well, it's a literal fountain. God dropped a literal fountain out of it. No, no, he... The blood of Christ, the suffering, became a cleansing fountain. Matter of fact, that word opened in your text. Do you see that in verse 13, verse 1? The fountain opened uh, for the house of David. That is actually a, a, the word opened in the Hebrew is the word patak, which means to have a continual fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood. 
drawn from evangelism. It is a continual cleansing. And so Jesus provided that fountain when he died on the cross. This fountain is not primarily filled with blood here in the text. It's really also a cleansing that takes place. It's a cleansing from their guilt, a cleansing also from their bad habits. They, they loved idols. I want you to notice verse number 2. We're just going to walk through the text this morning and stay with me. Verse 2, the Bible says, And it shall come to pass in that day. There it is again, that phrase, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered, and I will cut cause the prophets and the unclean spirits to pass out of the land. So we see before the kingdom is established that God rids the land of false prophets. He rids the land of unclean spirits, which is demonic spirits, and he rids the land of idols. You cannot serve any other gods before me. Uh, the Holy Spirit of God and the, uh, the unclean spirit cannot dwell in the same place, the clean and the unclean. The false prophets will be moved out of the land, and this land will be cleansed for the king to set up and establish his kingdom. It's a cleansing of the land. Israel always had trouble with idols. Now, get this, and, and please don't miss it. The cleansing in verse 1 was an internal cleansing, right? Salvation is internal. It begins internal. It has to do with our heart, right? We believe the gospel. We believe by faith. And we believe, we trust Him in our hearts. So when you get saved and you believe and put your faith in the shed blood of Christ, you see Him for who He is. The pierced one of Calvary, that is the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So the only way to heaven is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is something that happens internal. But what happens in verse 2 is external. Now let me say this. God had to deal with the inside of Israel before he could deal with the outside. Nothing has changed. Here's what we're guilty of in our Baptist churches. We want the outside right before the inside gets right. We want people to look right. We want them to fit the mold we want them to just look the part and say, now, bless God, he's not looking, or he's not this, or look at him. Oh, are we not interested on what happened on the inside? Because here's the way I look at it. If the inside gets right, the outside's going to correct itself. We want the Spirit of God to clean someone up because if they get clean for the preacher, that ain't going to last. If they get clean for you, that's not, they're not going to stay. If they just conform to what we think that they should be, that will not last. But when it is a true cleansing, guess what happens? The inside gets right and all washed and clean, but the outside's right. And let me tell you what I believe happens on the outside. A smile comes to that face. Sometimes we just associate... We have, they put on new garments and all that. But no, hold on a second. I believe this. I believe a smile comes. And here's what else I believe. I believe a song happens inside of you. I believe worship begins to happen. Why? You got clean. The Bible says we are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. What is our fountain today? Our fountain is, of course, Christ. We know that. But our fountain every day that we should go to is the word of God. 
And if it cleans up the inside, then guess what? The outside will show, hey, every now and then your head will bob and not because you're asleep, you'll sit there and say, praise the Lord. Hey, a smile will come. Some of you are really good at head bobbing and it's like, hmm. And uh, I see that all the time. I'm just glad you're here. But you know what? Here's my thing. If something happens on the inside, it'll show on the outside. Same thing happened with Israel. The cleansing, and by the way, Here's another thing we need to just think about for a second. Let's get rid of our idols. I don't think any of you are going home right now and you got little wooden statues everywhere. But we do have idols. Here's what an idol is today. Anything we put before the Lord. Anything. There's people that put even spiritual things before the Lord. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that that crazy? They'll even put good things before the Lord. So can I tell you this? Listen to me, church. We need to get the idols out of our life. We need to get the unclean spirits out of our life. Now, we know good and well that if a person is saved, no unclean spirit can dwell inside of them when the Holy Spirit takes residence. Can I get an amen? We're not a charismatic church. We believe, I'm not up here casting demons out of people and people rolling around and eyes roll back in their head and uh, flopping. You do that, I'm leaving. Amen, I can't handle that. That's too much drama there. That makes me nervous. We're not in that charismatic stuff. Let me tell you something. Listen to me. I do believe that demonic spirits do confuse people in this day and age. I believe that's the spirit of demonism. I believe that people are so confused by what the Word says. Here's what they'll do before they read the Word. They'll go watch a YouTube video. I wonder what this YouTube video has to say about the Bible or God. Why are you watching a confound YouTube video when you've got the Word of God? Hey, get that stuff out of there. I'm not saying everything on YouTube. We're on YouTube. Go watch something else. Hey, but I'm saying this. Get in the Bible. Get in the Bible. Quit reading books that's confusing you. Quit watching television preachers that are confusing you. Get in the Word. Get in the fountain. Hey, this fountain is not just filled with the blood of Christ covering our guilt. It's filled with water, the water of the Word that that gives us a a good moral cleansing. I I was raised in the 80s. I'm a kid of the 80s. Can I get an amen? And my mom and dad, we didn't have all the gizmos and gadgets and Game Boys and iPhones. And I remember the first time I got a Nintendo. It was one of the greatest gifts I ever got in my life. Uh, 1988, I got a Nintendo. Uh, We couldn't afford it. My aunt felt sorry for us, bought me a Nintendo and uh, for Christmas. And and man, I loved it. Duck Hunt, Mario Brothers. And I can hear that music and just start praising the Lord. I love Mario Brothers. But up until that point, my mom and dad, and even then, when I was caught playing games in my bedroom, dad would always walk in. He'd say, Steve, you been outside today? And I said, no, sir, get outside. I said, what do you want me to do? Just get outside. And here's what they would do. This might be child abuse or not. I'm not sure. But they would say, they would lock the door. I would go outside and mom and dad would lock the door. I would beat on it. Mom, I'm thirsty. And I'm not exaggerating. Mom would say, there's a spigot behind the house. Old rusty spigot sticking out of the back. I'd put my lips on that spigot. And listen, that, that thing right there cleansed me from every disease that was ever, ever made. There was no such thing as COVID in the 80s, man. We, we were sanitized and everything else. 
And so we, we, that's how we did it. And mom had said, you're staying outside. So man, I learned to play outside. Can I get an amen? I had imaginary friends. I had imaginary soldiers. I was a warrior. I was rescuing people from traps and from imprisonment. I was fighting all the Germans. I killed Hitler 14 times. <laughs> did all kind. listen, I was just, and, and, but when I came in in the evening, when I, when mom would finally unlock the door and she'd say, Supper. She'd holler. I'd go inside, and man, I was filthy. I'm talking about absolutely filthy. And mom would say, you ain't eating supper like that. We couldn't come to the supper table dirty. We just couldn't. So mom would say, there's, we're going to run you some bath water. You get in there, and you come out, and you scrub. And I want to say, and buddy, when she meant scrub, I'm talking about like sandpaper. Like it was, ah, that hurts, you know. And you, she'd get you uh, scrubbed up and clean. I was just a little thing. And then uh, when I came to the table, I was clean, and I was, and you know, back then I didn't quite understand all that, but I do now. Because even if I work outside now and do some stuff, yard work, it's about that time of the year, mulching and, and uh, getting throwing stuff out, trimming trees and doing different than mowing your grass. And, buddy, you get sweaty and dirty. I don't want to go in there and sit on the couch and just lay in my filth all day and be stinky and sweaty. You know what I want to do? I want to get in the shower. I want to rinse the filth of the world and the filth of things off of me. Same thing spiritually. We rinse off. How do we rinse off? We go to the one that made that available. We rinse off. And so there was a cleansing. Hey, let me say this, church. We are still called to be a holy people. Separated, set apart. He said the false prophets are gone. The demon spirits are gone. The demon spirits of confusion. And by the way, if you think things are bad today, think about how bad they're going to be in the tribulation period in this time right here. Hey, the spirit of God's going to be gone. Actually, there'll be a great deception fall on people. Who's going to be deceiving? Well, we know who the deceiver is. Satan, Lucifer. So we see the fountain that is open. It's a continual fountain. But number two, we see the false. Well, who is the false? We'll look at verse number three. It says, and it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and mother shall that beget him shall say unto him. Now listen to this. Thou shalt not live. This is mom and dad saying to this to the boy that's prophesying, or to the, to the child, thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that begat him, meaning that had him, that, that conceived him, that, that delivered him, shall thrust him through when he prophesied. Now this, I read that verse, and I'll be honest with you, in this time, Israel is so against false prophets they are so against anything that is false that if a son begins to prophesy in a false teaching way and starts uh, being anti-Christ, if you will, in false teaching, that the mom and dad is instructed of the Lord to thrust him through. That's the same Hebrew word as the word pierce. Literally, to pierce him through and kill him. Now, thank God for grace. Because if we do that today in this age of grace, it's called murder. We can't thrust our children through. I've heard mama say, I'm about to kill them kids. Don't do it. This is bad. I, I get it. It's not the tribulation period yet, right? It's about to be tribulation period in some of y'all's houses. I understand that. You said you didn't grow up in the house I grew up. It was tribulation period. No, this is literal tribulation period. I mean, moms and dads will be thrusting the sword through their children because of the false teaching. Now, here's what happens. 
Notice the false. Israel said, I'm done with it. I'm no longer tolerating uh, this kind of behavior. We are not tolerating uh, the false prophets. Look at verse number 4. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophets, these false prophets, shall be ashamed every one of his vision. So he's going to be ashamed, embarrassed, backtracking. Hold on. When he hath prophesied, here's what they say, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. Now, what's that word rough garment mean? These prophets are going to backpedal a little bit. They're going to say, I'm not a, I'm not a prophet. See, I don't have prophet clothes on. Rough garments. What's rough? Gar- it means the word rough means hairy. Well, what, what would that, what would a hairy garment be? It would be what John the Baptist wore. What uh, Elijah wore in 1 Kings chapter 19, they wore, prophets wore really weird clothes. They, they wore animal skins. You, you could see a guy walking down the road and, and you could see what he was wearing. You could say, that's a prophet. That man has some garments on that most ordinary men don't wear. The prophet right here, these false prophets are saying, we're not wearing those rough clothes. We're not wearing those hairy garments. Look at us. And here's what they say they are. Look with me in verse number 5. But he shall say, I am no prophet. I am a husbandman. What's that? That's a farmer. He's going to say, I'm not a prophet. I'm not a false prophet. For man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. So this is going to be such a day. Now stay with me. We're getting somewhere real quick. It's going to be such a day that Israel is rid of all these false prophets in the day of Zechariah that the prophets that are preaching this false teaching they're going to backpedal and say, we're not, we're not false prophets. People are going to be looking for them to kill them. And they're going to say, look at what I've got on. I don't wear what a prophet would wear. I'm a farmer. People have taught me to watch cattle is what they say right there in verse number five. From my youth, I've never done that before. Now look at verse six. And one shall say unto him, what are, the, what are these wounds in thine hand? Now that's interesting. Some people take verse 6 and they say wounds in the hands and they automatically think that it's talking about Jesus because verse 7 is talking about Christ. But it's actually still talking about the false prophet. Someone is actually looking for evidence that these are false prophets and one of the evidences is going to be holes in the hands. You say, Pastor, that doesn't make a lick of sense. It only makes sense... If you go back to 1 Kings chapter number 18 and a few verses in Jeremiah, what happened in 1 Kings 18? Well, we know that uh, the prophet Elijah is on the on mount. Uh, he's on the mountain there and, and uh, he is, he is uh, praying down fire from, from heaven. He's, he's built an altar there. He put water around it and built it up. And, and uh, he's got the prophets of Baal, 450 of them watching. And, and so they're up there on the mountain. And Elijah's going to pray fire down from heaven on and consume this altar. I mean, water's there, but it don't make any sense in a, in a literal sense. But, but here he is. He's praying down fire. And the prophets of Baal are around. And so Elijah, then he kind of contends with them and says, hey, why don't you pray to your God, Baal, your little G-God, and you pray fire down. And so guess what? These Baal prophets, 450 of them, started calling out to Baal and praying, and, and nothing happened. And guess what Elijah began to do? He began to mock, the Bible says, and he began to poke fun. He began to make fun of them for all of that. And guess what happened? 
In verse 19, they pull out their swords or they pull out their knives. And the Bible says they got so wrapped up in this prayer to these false gods that the Bible says they began to cut themselves. These false prophets in the Old Testament, just a, you know, in the first Kings, began to stab themselves and cut themselves to get the attention of Baal, this false god. Now, you say, Pastor, what do you think's happened here? I believe these false prophets are still the ones that are piercing their hands and cutting themselves for false teaching and idolatry. Now, folks, I'll be very honest with you, and I'm not going to tell you a literal sense because prophecy in the eschaton, we cannot be dogmatic about a lot of things. We can some things, but not all things. I'm telling you what I think about that verse. You may see it some other way. You may read something. You may read after somebody. They can be wrong or they can be right. I'm not sure. I'm telling you the way that I see it. That verse in verse number 6 has nothing to do with our Christ because look at verse number 7. We go to Calvary. He says, Awake, old sword, against my shepherd and against the man. I want you to notice that phrase, the man. That is my fellow. Notice that. My friend. Saith the Lord of hosts, Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Boy, what a confusing verse. If you're reading that verse, sometimes you're thinking, what in the world is going on? He's talking about a sword that is smiting the shepherd. Listen, this is God and what he did at Calvary. He took the sword of wrath and he, he smote the shepherd, the good shepherd. We see the false shepherd in some previous chapters, chapter 11. But this is the good shepherd. And God pours his wrath out on his son. Isaiah chapter 53. You want to read over there? Uh, you don't have to turn there, but here's what it said in Isaiah. It says, Isaiah 53 and verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his strength. Stripes, we are healed. God poured his wrath out on his son, whom he calls the man. Notice in verse 7, he's the man. That word man, very interesting word in the Hebrew, which means a strong man. The word geber, strong man. Well, what was Christ's strengths? We're not talking about some muscled up guy that had strong him in a strong man contest and he's able to lift and bench. and all. No, no, no. Christ was strong in character. He was strong in moral excellence. And listen, Christ was strong in being devoted to the will of the Father. And here's what God did. He took that sword of wrath that we deserved that Israel deserved, that the world deserved, that, that we deserved, and he poured it upon his son, Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 7, that my fellow, I, I believe that has to do with the deity of Christ. That word fellow is only used one other time in Scripture in the book of Leviticus. It means associate. It means to be linked together. My associate, one that, that I am working with, my com close companion. And here we see the deity of Christ because in John chapter 10, please don't miss this, he said, I and my Father are what? One. Listen, if you're wrong on the deity of Christ, you're not saved. You have to believe that Jesus Christ was God and is God. God in the flesh. So we see the companion. Notice that little phrase at the end of verse 7. 
that is the sheep will be scattered. Notice the sword, now the shepherd, but then the sheep. The sheep's going to be scattered. Jesus said in Matthew 26 and verse 31, he was talking to Peter right before the cross. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus said to Peter, Peter, smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was actually quoting Zechariah 13. What happened right after they captured Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? The disciples scattered. They ran. Well, the Bible says that Peter followed what? Afar off. Mark, he, he might have been that one that, that's portrayed in, that, in Mark's gospel. And, and, and he's, he's a, a one talking about himself where he grabs his clothing and runs out of there for safety. Hey, the other disciples followed, but they were not there during this time. John being the one that would be closest to the Lord. What did Israel do? They scattered. What, what happened after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What did the nation of Israel do? They scattered. Titus comes in in AD 70. He captures Jerusalem, destroys Jerusalem. And what happens to the Israelites? They scatter literally all over Europe and all over Asia Minor. They're all over the place. As predicted in Zechariah. Smite the sheep, or smite the shepherd rather, and the sheep will Scattered. There's a little phrase in verse 7. I'm almost through, but it says, And I will turn my hand upon the little ones. I, I really, you can interpret that two ways. Some, some people interpret that as God's judgment will be poured out. I do not believe that. I believe according to the context that his hand will be turned upon the little ones. That little remnant that's seen Christ for who he is will be protected during this time. The reason is because verses 8 and 9 is when God's wrath is poured out. The tribulation period, the greatest holocaust that's ever happened in the history of Israel will happen at this time. Look at verses 8 and 9. We'll see the furnace that takes place. The Bible says, And it shall come to pass that in the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left Therein. So understand this, two-thirds of Israel will be dead. Now, right now, I think there's eight million, eight and a half million Jews alive today. So just do, do, think in yourself, if we're close to the coming of the Lord, two-thirds of them are going to be, going to be uh, murdered or killed or destroyed during the tribulation period. That's going to leave and understand that even during that time, uh, 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 144,000 Jewish prophets are going to be preaching Christ, the gospel. So you understand that all that's going to be taking place and, and these, this, 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 in verse 8, they're going to be cut off. They're going to die. They're this furnace. And here's what Jesus, or God rather, in verse 9 talks about. And Stay with me there. He said, I will bring the third part. So this last remnant, the third of Israel, the ones that have survived, I'm going to bring them through the fire and I will refine them as silver is refined and I will try them as gold is tried and they will call on my name and I will hear them and I will say it is my people and they shall say the Lord is my God. So this refiner's fire 
He compares it to a precious metal being refined where they melt this metal and it turns into a liquid form and all the dross comes to the top and they scrape that top off and they take all the impurities and imperfections off and they put it aside and they're tried and they come out much better because of the refining process. Israel will be sifted. There's a leap in time between verses 7, which is the crucifixion, and verse 8, dealing with the end times. Two-thirds of the population will be destroyed. And I believe this remnant is the ones that found in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 14. They're the ones that see Him for who He is. And they go through the fire. I wrote this down. The results of the refining, I see any time we are refined by God, our Creator, the result will be the same according to verse 9. They shall call on my name. And I will hear them and I will say it is my people and they shall say the Lord is my God. Church, can I say this? That often we are refined to get out of our lives what is not like Him. According to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7, the Bible says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried by fire or with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. What does refining do? Often when a Christian is refined by fire, defilement comes to the top. Unfaithfulness comes to the top. Selfishness comes to the top. He is getting out of us what is not like Him. What's He doing to Israel? He's getting out of His people in whom He loves what's not like Him. And as soon as He does, they call upon His name. They begin to worship His name. Hey, they begin to see Him for who He is. The third of these people, just a remnant of people. And by the way, God has always had a remnant. And they are refined through the refiner's fire. Ah, you, there's some of you in here this morning that may be going through the fires of affliction. Can I tell you, don't get bitter towards it. Let's get better. I don't like the refining fire just like you don't like it, but sometimes that fire is the testings. It's not chastisement. It's to see what we're made of. I was reading the uh, how gold, and I don't understand it all, but there's different gold. That carrot, if you have 24 carat gold, that's pure gold. Some gold has other metals in it to make it more hardened and tough. 10 carat 14 carat. You read that and you start looking. Well, that's a 14 carat ring. Well, it has some other metals in it. And now what they do is they, they take metal and they may say, well, the outside is real gold, but the inside is actually lead or it's, or it's uh, uh, steel or it's something like that. It's not real gold all the way through. And that may do for a little ring, but that's not going to do when it comes to Christ. Because when we are refined, what He wants us through this process is to come out as pure gold. And not for our honor. And not for our glory. But for His. That we shine. That we shine for the Lord. That we present ourselves that way for the Lord. Not for us. Not for attention on ourselves. That refiner's fire is for the glory of God. Even all the way back in Zechariah Chapter number 13. All be glory to God. 
I hope that you've been encouraged. Prophecy should not make us scared. Prophecy should not confuse us. Prophecy should actually encourage the believers that we read the back of the book and we win. Christ has a purpose for the believer and Christ has a purpose for Israel. Amen.